For those who don't know me, I'm Josh. I'm the youth pastor here. And when Troy's away, I get to preach. And for those who heard me last time, I brought a massive Goliath statue. Uh, sorry I didn't bring that today. got lost. Um, but in this time, as Troy is away and his grandbaby is born, there's chaos. Um, we just came out of probably the most chaotic season of the year, Christmas time, where you're running around buying gifts. When you're running around planning things, you're doing all these events, and there seems to be every other person that you've talked to in the last year is now having a Christmas party that you're expected to go to, buy a gift for, you can't keep track, and then there's always the last minute of, um, last minute of buying gifts. And also in this chaos, I forgot to dismiss the kids who can go and join Deidre, but that's new to me. This is usually Troy's job, so I don't get this stuff. But... With this chaos it brings, there's tons of chaos in our everyday life too, whether it be picking up kids from school, whether it be your own life, job, whatever it be, it seems that there's always a million things to do on every single day, and we run out of time every day, and we just push it off to the next day until the one day we get off is now filled with chaotic craziness that we have to do because it's our day off and we've pushed everything too. Um, there's also chaos in just our own little banter. So for those who don't know, Troy grew up being a Lakers fan, and he roots for the Lakers. I see a few cheers. I, however, from Massachusetts, so I'm a die-hard Boston sports fan. I love the Celtics, the Patriots, the Bruins, the Red Sox. I will root for them the day I die. And for people who come up to me and say, oh, you're, you're out here now, you need to root for our teams, I will tell them, and I will continue to tell people, I am much more scared of my grandfather than I am of any of you. So, but as chaos goes, there's still God in our chaos. And there's chaos in our office sometimes when I hang up my Celtics, or I happen to wear a Boston Celtics jersey on stage as I preach. And so I see Cameron leaving. Sorry about that. But even though, go ahead, tell Troy. Even though there's chaos, and I'm now wearing a Celtics jersey on Troy's stage, and God's stage, more importantly, God will still use me, or at least I hope now, use me to preach his word. And so, where there is chaos in our lives, between people, between things, God is in between our chaos. And so... When I was in college, we went to, I went to a preaching class, and they taught us different styles of preaching. So what tends to be commonly known is there's different formats that we tend to hear, but I doubt that many of you have heard this story, this form. It's called an episodic sermon. So what's going to happen is I'm going to tell you 10 individual stories. And they're all going to start with the phrase you see on the screen, there you were in the chaos of. Now, these stories will be maybe personal stories of that I've experienced personally. They could be stories of people that have told me. And there are, some of them will be stories of point of, ver point of views of people in the Bible that you may know, but it's from a different point of view than what we're used to. Every, so every story will start with, there you were in the chaos of. Every story will finish, there, God, there was God in the chaos and I'm not going to talk about transition. That's how we're going to transition from story to story. And for my note takers, you're looking at your notes in your bulletin. And you're like, what the heck am I supposed to do with this? So at the top of that page, it says, there I was in the chaos of. I want you to write your own episodic sermon. So whatever chaos you are in, as I tell these 10 stories, 
feel free to write that down. Maybe it's a troubling day, a troubling week, a troubling month, or a troubling year. Write it down. And now, as you write that story for yourself, as I'm telling stories up here, I want you under that, it says, there, God, there was God in that. So as you look in that, where was God in your chaos? Because he was there. I can guarantee you he was there. You may have not seen him like you want to. He may have not answered your praise the way you want to, but he was there every single time without fail. So, there I was in the chaos of my Christmas party. There are people yelling loudly. We're in a tiny, tiny grandparent's uh, house. There's constant laughter whenever something drops onto the floor. All my family breaks out and, hey, oh, hey, whatever it was. There's always loud chaos going on. There is even times where if you want to get from one end of this tiny house to the other, it might take you 10 minutes because you've got to squeeze through everyone and you've got to talk to everyone you haven't seen. There's cousins of cousins, grandparents, old people that I've never met before that tell me I knew, they knew me when I was this high. I don't know them, but I've got to say hi to them as my way on. I get hungry. Now, my family, if you, uh, if you are last of the food, there may not be any food left. And so... There I am trying to get some food, and I'm hungry. I feel my stomach rumbling. I haven't eaten anything. I've worked all day, but I'm ready for Christmas Eve. The special thing about Christmas Eve is my grandma makes her famous dish of chicken casserole. She makes it twice a year, and this is one of them. In this chaos of laughter, loud, I try to work my way to the kitchen, but there's people already in line. Plates are already piled with chicken casserole. I don't know if I'm going to get any. And there my grandma is, reaches out for me as my hand is out and pulls me to the front of the line and scoops me a helping. And even after a few steps, I say, oh, Grandma, I'm good. She keeps going because she knows I'll be back for seconds. But there God was in my chaos through my grandma as she fed me knowing I was hungry. There you are in the chaos in the town of Jezebel following God's call on your life to be a prophet for him. In this world that is unchurched, this world that does not want to hear your message, God has called you. So you listen to him. You go to the town. You go and preach the word that God has given you. You've said word for word what God's supposed to do. You feel like you've done everything right as a prophet. You've listened to him. You've followed him and you've told the people. These people don't want to listen to you though. They don't care what you have to say. Not only do they not care, they actively disagree with you. They feel like you have disturbed their way of life. They feel like you are spewing chaos to them, and they do not care. They do not care so much that they want to kill you. And you've listened to God, and you're like, what the heck is going on? So instead of dying on that day, you run. You run for your life as if the, your life depends on it, because it does. These people have driven you out of the city, driven you to a whole nother city where you dropped off all your belongings that you care about, all the people you care about, and you kept running into the forest. Now these people have driven you to the break of not wanting to live anymore. You feel like you've lived up to your full potential as a prophet. You listened to God, you followed him in everything you did, but nothing went right. Truly, if God was there, he would have told you things would have happened. Things would have been... Saved, these people would have turned from their wicked ways and heard you, but they did not. So you want it to end. You ask God to end it for you. You ask God, please don't make me do this ever again. I am done. Take me now. Let me be with you, and that will be that. 
God tells you, take a nap. He, you wake up from your nap. He feeds you some cake, nice glass of water, and you go back to your nap. You wake up from your second nap. You are fed, and you are ready. Not only have you been fed with physical bread, but if you have been fed and thirst with the living word of God as he was there in your chaos. When all those who have turned from you, all those who wanted to persecute you, their God was in your chaos. It was not your job, but he is taking care of you every step of the way. And their God was in your chaos. There you were in the chaos of fishing with these massive, massive nets. You're on your boat. People are calling out different sails like to the starboard and poop deck and all this stuff going left and right. And whatever you do, you cannot catch a single fish. You can't do it. You've been fishing for years. You know this lake like the back of your hand. This should be the spot. This is where the fish are. But these people are yelling. Now you're getting into arguments with those on your boat with you because you can't figure it out. You don't know why these fish aren't biting. You don't understand it. You don't fully grasp it. And your, your family is waiting at home for these fish. These fish will feed you. These fish will feed your family. They are depending on you. And you cannot go home to your disappointed wife again. You cannot go home empty-headed without any fish. And you start getting frustrated. You start blaming this guy, and this guy starts blaming you. How would I know? This is where the fish are. And there's complete chaos on this boat. Suddenly, this stranger from ashore yells at you, Cast your nets on the other side! Excuse me? Who is this guy? I've never seen him on a lake for my entire life. I know everyone on this lake. I know everyone around here. I know every fisherman ever. He doesn't know anything. And you start kind of, it kind of settles the mood. You start cracking jokes at this guy with your crewmates. What the heck does this guy know? He doesn't know anything. Have you ever seen him? No. Have you ever seen him? No. But for whatever reason, he's telling you, he keeps telling you, throw your nets on the other side of the boat. This is madness. How is that going to change? We're not moving the boat. This guy doesn't even have good advice. At least if you're going to yell at me, yell me something good. But after a while, a little persistence, you guys look at each other and go, well, I can't go home to the disappointed wife with no fish. And you know your buddy can't either. What the heck? We might as well listen to this guy. Last attempt. You pick up your nets. You throw it on the other side of the boat. And all of a sudden, the fish come out of nowhere. I mean, these nets are filling up crazy. And you start yanking them up and throwing them back and pulling up. Before you know it, your boat is about to sink with how many fish you have on the boat. So you frankly tell them to stop fishing and let's get this boat to shore. Let's get this boat in. Let's get this fish. Let's sell this fish. Let's eat this fish. Because there is so much fish. Their God was in your chaos. When you thought nothing could go right, when you couldn't buy a bucket, catch a break, catch a fish with a massive net, God redirected you and there he was in the chaos of fruitfulness. There you are in the chaos of planning a funeral. Your loved one had just died, and the details are overwhelming. The will, their last wishes, choosing what pictures to display, choosing what songs, because they didn't leave a detailed list. And still, all while you organize this funeral and this wake and all these things that come with that, you have no time to grieve for yourself. The people in your other family who aren't dealing with these details get to grieve as they will. 
find ways that they get to put off with their emotions, but you can't because you have to deal with everything. Families flying in, you have to find rooms for them to stay. Friends are flying in, and you just can't take it. Every night feels like you're exhausted, and the next day will just be another round of this exhausting work. And you still have a family to take care of. You still have to put food on the table. You still have to go to work, and nothing seems to be going your way. Everything, the stress is starting to feel in your chest and on your shoulders as you walk around, and it's getting overbearing. But luckily, you go to a church with a loving community. You go to a church where there's a pastor that cares for you, but not only you, but your family. They care for every detail of your wake. The people within the church help at every instance. All of a sudden, these details that were so mundane that you just couldn't bear to deal with, someone comes along and says, hey, I'll take care of that for you. Suddenly, the pastor is helping you out and giving you people that are cooking food for you, that are setting up centerpieces for the wake and the funeral. Suddenly, these details that were weighing you down and allowing you not to be able to grieve with this loss are taken care of. This pastor, this community has gathered around you because they love you and dealt with these details so you may properly grieve. And even going through that grieving process, going through those motions of whatever that looks like for you personally, God was there with your community there to give you people, no matter what was going on, that said, hey, I'm here for you. Hey, I got your back. Whatever you need, I will do. And God has given those people the gifts to support you in just the right way, whether it be cook a meal that you can't seem to get. You've been eating McDonald's for a week because you just can't cook. But they've given you that home-cooked meal that tastes so good. Their God was in your chaos. There you are in the chaos of work. You're working retail, you've been working it for a few years now, and these customers just keep piling in. They don't stop. Their requests seem to get more outrageous with everyone. Things that you've never sold in the store before, things that you were out of stock 30 years ago. The people don't stop asking. The Christmas music at the time is loud, and it's the same five stupid songs over and over and over and over again, and you're driving yourself crazy. You can't enjoy the season because of this. And this craziness, this stress of your boss seems to be on your back at all times. Seems to point out every mistake you have, even though the guy next to you is making a million times more. He seems to only care about you. And even in the slow times, a few five minutes that you get to relax as there's no customers in the store, your boss leans over to you and says, if you're leaning, you can be cleaning. And you're tired of this because he says it all the time. Nothing seems to go right today. The customers don't stop, and of course you decide to cover your best friend's shift, so now an eight-hour shift has turned into a 12. And it seems ridiculous, this time will never go. You watch that clock, and you pray, and you beg for that clock to just go a little bit faster, but it seems that every time you look at it, just go a little bit slower. Finally, that's that time, your cover comes in, you can't wait, you're already out the door. You say goodbye, you go home, you couldn't drive fast enough home. But you get in, and there is your spouse waiting for you with the meal of your favorite. Whatever that is, whether it be lasagna or casserole or a favorite dish, there it is, hot and ready for you. Because she knows it's been a stressful day. She understands the seasons of what we're going through and that these customers are relentless. They're able to just sit there and let you rant, get all this stuff off the chest, all your frustrations, 
in this meal that is comforting, and they understand that you can go to bed. It's time. You've had a long day, and they understand that. They want to spend more time with you, but they put your needs first for that day because they know that that's what you need. They even threw the blanket in the dryer for five minutes to warm it up a little bit because they know that's what you like. Their God was in your chaos with a partner that supports you and loves you dearly. Someone that would put, them, put you before themselves at times because they understand that you had a hard day. They would understand that today's not about them but about you. And their God was in your chaos. There you were in the chaos of war. You're a king of God's people. The army of the Valley of Eden here to stop the Philistines. You have won these wars before. You kind of start drawing up a battle plan. The men head into battle. And there's a, there's a kink in your plan. You need to win this battle. This will secure your kingdom. This will prevent an onslaught and eventually probably your death as your head gets chopped off. So this, there's a lot riding on this. Suddenly this 10-foot man comes, stands out, and you're the king, and you realize, oh crap, this man is huge. And typically you would send your people in waves down into the valley, and you would send more men than the other, and you'd come out victorious. Instead, they've challenged you to a one-on-one. You ask your men around, please, will someone take on this battle of one-on-one? No one does. And you start to realize it is your job as king of this nation to go fight that behemoth of a man one-on-one. You're the king. You're responsible for these people, for these men in these trenches, for their families at home, for the people at home. You are responsible for them, and you are called to go fight them. And so you don't. You put it off. This chaos of people telling you, you have to go out there, you have to fight, you continue to put it off and again and again and again, because there's no way little old you as the king can go up against this massive 10-foot man. And suddenly God sends you the perfect person, someone that is willingly to fight this man. So you instantly give him your armor, you give him your sword, you give him everything you can do, because that's all you have is the worldly possessions. You're the king This is all you can give them. And they choose not to do that. And as you stand from your tent on top of the mountain, he marches down to the valley, and with one little swing of a rock, he takes us down and wins victor over your enemies. Their God was in that chaos that you had to face something, and he sent someone with gifts around you, people that would take care of that issue that you may have never meant to take care of. You can't believe that God has come into the chaos of battle and won it for you again. Because every time they've won, God was on your side. There you were in the chaos of a Sunday morning. Church starts at 9.45, and you had a whole pep talk last night to your family about how you're getting to, not only are you getting to church on time, you are getting to Sunday school at 8.30 in the morning. You told your kids, you better wake up, and we're taking, we have a shower schedule, 10 minutes per shower, in and out. We got to get everyone through. You're going to make it to Sunday school for the first time. It's a new year, new you. You're going to do it. You had a powwow with your spouse, and you said, this is going to work. This is going to work. You wake up Sunday morning, you've already missed the alarm. You are the late one. The kids are not awake because it's your job to wake them up. The alarm is broken. Your husband is still sleeping. And you are freaking out. 
It is 7.45. There is no way you're getting the kids, yourself, and your spouse all the way through to get to church on Sunday school at 8.30. Okay, no Sunday school, but we can still make it to church on time. Plenty of time to get there. Two hours to be precise. We will get to church on time. All right. Wake up one, send in the shower. You start to go make breakfast. You turn around because the other two have started fighting, and now you have to separate them and make sure that they are no longer fighting. Now the other one is taking 20 minutes in the shower, and now the eggs are burnt. This is going awful. Everything could not line up for you every single day. This is crazy. So finally you get them all through, and now you have to braid the hair because they want a certain hairstyle that's cool at school, and they need to be cool at Sunday school and church. So you have to do that. And now he's still asleep. Now the eggs are burnt again for a second time because you're too busy with everything else. And you say, whatever, we're making eggo waffles. Throw them in the toaster. If they're burnt, they're burnt. Put a little extra syrup on them. Right? But of course, one of your kids hate when the when the waffles are burnt, and they complain and complain and complain. Well, that's too bad. Here's a granola bar. Let's get out the door. Hopefully, at this time, we've made it, right? We've had two hours to do this. We've had two hours to give everyone a shower, give everyone change, give everyone eat breakfast, and you look at the clock, it's 9.45, and you're still in the car in the driveway. Unbelievable. And still, so you check, you count everyone in the car, you're missing one. What the heck is going on? You go inside, he can't tie his shoes. So you have to tie his shoes, carry them out, throw them in the car, and now it's 9.50. You drive down, and of course it's snow today, by the way, so you can't go as fast as you'd like to, so you're going nice and slow down the road. As you see that time, just tick away. Finally, you pull in church, you get meted at the door, and you have to go to your spot. Oh, look, someone's sitting in your spot that you normally sit in. What are the chances? Oh, well, shuffle into this pew. One of your kids start complaining. Who cares? They want the end seat. They're in the middle. That's too bad. Get in the seat and sit down. And all of a sudden, you realize that the preacher is already preaching. Where does the time go? And it's some young 22-year-old preaching. Where the heck is the senior pastor? Where the heck is the senior pastor? This is unbelievable. Uncalled for. God can't use this kid. But suddenly, as you listen, and you start taking down your notes, and you start to relax and breathe, that you actually made it to church at this point, which you consider accomplishment after this terrible, horrible morning. God speaks to you. He's used whoever is up here on stage, whether it's the music or the preacher, to touch your heart. It does not matter what they look like, what they're wearing, who they are, what the age, what their backgrounds, where they're from. God is going to use them to touch your heart, and he does. They're... God was in your chaos. There you were in the chaos of life without sight. You were born blind at the time of Jesus, this miraculous man, but you're blind. You don't know what the world looks like, and truly the preachers and people around you tell you that because you were born blind, you must have done something awful to deserve this. God is smiting you. He's rejecting you. That's what you deserve. That's too bad. Or maybe it was your parents. Maybe your parents didn't do something quite right, just enough. They didn't go to the temple one time, so Jesus made you blind. That's awful. Well, this is the life that you, you are born into. No sight, purely dependent on those around you and those you trust. Every morning you get up, your friends walk you to in front of the temple, and you sit down, and you beg. That's the only way to make money. You can't see anything. You can't be a carpenter without seeing the wood. Or you might cut your hand off. Who knows what's going to happen? So you sit in front of the temple and beg. You beg and beg. You beg. Every morning, people throw coins at you. Sometimes they go into your cups. Sometimes they scatter on the ground. And you feel kind of stupid sitting there patting around looking for these coins. But that's the only way you can live. 
Then your friends come pick you up. You have to give them a percentage of your pay because they're helping you. They, you couldn't do this without them, and this is a thank you. You walk into the house, you go to bed, and you do this all over again, every single day. This loop of continuously begging and asking for help, asking for money, it's getting exhausting. This going through the motions over and over and over again. One day people may mock you, others people may spit on you, but that's just how it goes. As long as they throw some money at you while they do it, that's okay with you. But suddenly as these people walk in and out of the temple, they're mentioning this Messiah, this guy who does miracles, this guy who's known as Jesus. Well, if this guy can do miracles, then surely, surely he can heal my sight. Surely he could do it, right? Because if I'm cursed by God, then if God came down, then God can uncurse me. At least that was your thought. And so this day of begging and begging, you hear a different voice, something, a voice you're never familiar with. You start to know the people that come in and come out. Who's going to give you more money? You might be a little bit nicer to them, ask a little bit louder. But you start to hear this kind of hustle and bustle, more people than usual, different voices that you've never heard. And so you think, maybe this is Jesus. Maybe this is the Messiah, the guy that people have talked about, the people that can hear, the people that present miracles. So you start screaming at the top of your lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And these people around you aren't used to you screaming like this. So they tell you to shut up. They tell you to be quiet. There's important people around. There's people that you are not need to be around. So you do what any person that just told to be quiet. You yell louder. You get more attention on you. You continue to yell, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And they continue to tell you to shut up. They're tired of you. You're just an annoying beggar on the side of the road. Just move out of the way for this guy, Jesus. Finally, you yell one last time, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And the man that you presume to be Jesus asks you, what do you want me to do for you? Finally, the question that has been asked, you could ask for a million dollars. You could ask for anything in the world, but you know exactly what you want. And you reply to him, Rabbi, Teacher, Messiah, I want to see. I mean, at this point, it's, it's a Hail Mary. It's fourth and 25, you're throwing it down to the touchdown. Anything will work. If this guy can't heal you, oh well, you've made a stink of yourself and you go back to begging. But then you hear him say, Go, your faith has healed you. And just as the words hit your ears, the world comes into view. This man in front of you, these people, these crowds come into view. The colors, the dirt, the dust, you start to see your own hands, the money that's around you that people have thrown and you have not grabbed. Everything comes into view. And just as the world came into view, you truly understand that this guy is it. This guy is a miracle worker. There's, you realize there's no more begging for you. You are done with those days. Instead, you will follow this man to the ends of the earth. Their God was in your chaos. There you are in the chaos of a Monday morning. You have a big test in your least favorite subject imaginable. Maybe it's chemistry. Maybe it's calculus. But of course it's on a Monday because Mondays couldn't get any worse. You had a great time at youth last night. And you wished you just slept through Monday and the rest of the week as well. But you spent all the weekend studying. People invited you out to see movies, go hang out with them. But you need to know 
you need to get a certain grade on this test. So you've told them, no, you need to wake up. You need to study. You need to ace this test. Now, originally, before going to bed, you went to bed nice and early that morning because you're a responsible student and said, I'm going to wake up early to study more because that will make sense. Instead, you have slept through that first alarm and it's now your actual alarm to go to school. Crap, I've missed my first study session of the day and it's your first subject, so that's pretty intense. You're running out the door because you woke up late. You've practically got your shoes on, your sweatshirt's barely on you, but you're running out the door because you need to get to school, need to be on time for this test because you need every single minute the teacher will allow you to use. You need everything you can. As you're sitting in the car getting drove to school, you're reading through your book, you're reading through your notes, but it becomes all a blur because you're too tired to focus. You sit down in your seat, and you're ready, you breathe in, breathe out, you're starting to stress, you can feel yourself kind of getting a little sweaty. Is it really hot in here? I'm sure, I'm surely it's not just me, but your anxiety, your stress, your nerves are building up as that test slowly goes around the classroom. You start to see people as they flip over the test, and you watch their reactions as their head slowly sinks into their hands, and someone you could have sworn ripped out a clump of hair. This does not inspire confidence in you in any sort because you're hoping maybe today the test would be easy, but as usual, it wasn't. Slowly you flip over the test and you start reading through the material, start flipping pages, and you get to the back of the page and crap. You have not recognized one question, one answer on this test. So you flip back and you fill in the one line you can that says name, and even then you mess up. You mess up on your name, you can't believe it, so you scratch it out and write your name again. And you are dumbfounded looking at this test as you can't seem to remember anything you were just looking at in the car 10 minutes ago. You can't remember anything you spent all Sunday, all Saturday, all Friday night reading through. You can't remember. So you slowly close your eyes and you just pray. You pray to God that please just give me the quizlet right in my head, all the answers right into my hand that I will just write and close my eyes and God will take the test for me. Now, you know God doesn't work like that, but what the heck, miracles have happened, so let's try. So you take a deep breath, you calm yourself down, and you relook at the test. Your stress and anxiety is still there, but it's just now subdued. It is now a level that is manageable, one that where your hand is no longer shaking, and you can start to slowly read through the problems that you have. God has given you the calmness and the poise that even though you may be stressed and anxious, God is there as you write these answers. God, there was God in your chaos. There you are in the chaos of the destruction of the Jewish temple. This temple that you and your family have been going to for what seems generations, this temple has been a staple in your family. You go every day to go pray. This is where you go. This is the place you call home. Suddenly your city is under siege. And as you watch from your doorstep, this temple that you have, your grandfathers have helped you build, that you've gone to, that your kids know, crumbles to the ground. Clearly this place is not safe for you, not safe for your family. So you start to run. You run all the way to Asia Minor, which is a long, long, long run. And there you are, you settle in town. A few of the members from the temple that you kind of recognize, maybe they're not best of friends, but you know them, kind of settle in the same area as you. So, not to make sure your faith doesn't go to waste and that you don't want to get out of habit, you start to have a home church. You invite a few of them over and you start to 
talk about the Word. You don't remember everything. You were never into that. You're a carpenter for all you care, and you don't have the training for it, but you start to discuss the Word. You realize that God is there in your fellowship, but you don't seem to have any planning. You don't seem to have a purpose in this. You don't seem to fully grasp what you're trying to do. You're just hoping that God will do something there. And after a while, it seems to be going on and on. And you guys have already talked about these same five scriptures over and over and over again because it's all you kind of remember. And suddenly, this, you start to hear of this letter being passed around from town to town from your old pastor, the one who was at the temple. Finally, you and your home church receive this letter and you start to read it together. As John tells you that through this time of trial and tribulation and this time that is struggling with, praise God. Praise God that you have been tested. Praise God that we are together in these home churches. Praise God through it all. And this letter continues to give you recommendations on what to do, how to praise God, and how that we deal with this. It gives you um, encouragement on how you do, and gives you encouragement on how to be in the Lord. You couldn't have been happier, and you wish you could keep on this letter, but you know, just as filled up this letter has made you, it will need to go on to the next city to fill those up who may have moved there. And slowly this house church starts to grow momentum, as not only are you reaching those who have escaped the temple from years past, but you start to grow in a community. You start to make an actual church, gathering those around you, and their God was in your chaos. This week, we're all going to face chaos of all different kinds, different problems, different issues, whatever it be. Maybe it's a buildup, whatever it is. But you will have chaos this week. I can guarantee you that. No matter big or small, there will be chaos. And maybe one of these stories have happened to you or will happen to you because tomorrow is Monday. Or maybe it's already happened to you today as you got to church late. But I can guarantee you also, God is in your chaos no matter what. No matter what you go through, God is in your chaos. No matter what you believe, God is in your chaos. And no matter whether you see it or you ask for prayer and it's not answered the way you think it is, God is there in your chaos. Go this week, live in that chaos, but know God is with you in the chaos and look for him in that chaos. Thank you.